These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. There really wasn't much to say about Canaanite history prior to the Late Bronze Age. The Early and Middle Bronze Ages are mostly the story of Byblos, with a few occasional details about the folks surrounding them. But as I mentioned last episode, it is a challenge to get much serious archaeology done in the Levant, thanks in large part to the continuous settlement in the region. While folks around the world consider themselves, you know, I'm living on ancestral land, that is more literally true in Canaan than it is in most places, where the modern-day cities are often sited exactly on top of the old cities. In much of Mesopotamia, by contrast, the changing courses of the two great rivers and the salinity problem have meant that the ancient cities would dry up every few hundred years and need to get moved around. Even the old site of Old Babylon is slightly off from where later Babylon was, as the Euphrates at some point shifted and appears to have drowned half the old city. Not only have the ancient sites degraded by thousands of years of random people picking up neat stuff off the ground, but also it's tough to dig where there are already modern buildings in the way. And that's not to mention the political hazards involved in digging up stuff in a contested holy land. Despite all this, though, the Late Bronze Age offers up a bit more in the way of archaeology. And perhaps more importantly, it has what is perhaps the greatest single cache of documents in maybe all of Near Eastern archaeology, the Amarna Letters. Hundreds of letters have survived from the 30-year period when the city of Akhet Atem was the Egyptian capital, and a good number of them come from the mayors, or vassal kings, of Canaan, discussing the various issues of their territories. But before we start talking about what those vassal kings said, we should take a step back and see how these once fractious and independent city-states became vassals in the first place. Now, our story begins around 1600, though here too we're looking at the consequences of things which occurred a century or two earlier in faraway lands. Those who remember the beginning of the Hittite series, which I will admit was a long time ago by podcast standards, will remember the tales of Pitana, Anita, Labarna, Hattushili, and Mershili, the kings who, over the course of one or two centuries in the Middle Bronze Age, five times rose up to conquer a massive chunk of Anatolia before seeing the empire collapse around them at their deaths. Well, I guess they didn't see the empire's collapse because they were dead, but uh, you get what I mean. When we discussed these back in episodes from 58 to 62, it was in the context of the rising Hittite Empire, with very little discussion of the people on the receiving end of these massive wars. But you will remember from last episode that I mentioned the early part of the Middle Bronze Age saw the expansion of the Hurrians into eastern Anatolia, northern Syria, and places nearby. These early Hittite wars of the later Middle Bronze Age appear to have massively displaced large numbers of Hurrians, and the disruptions following Mershali's death that led to a weakened Hittite state left nowhere safe. 
Over generations, land was progressively despoiled through plunder and conquest and reconquest, and even though none of the governments involved invoked any anti-hurriant sentiments, the fact was that quite a lot of fighting occurred on hurrian lands, and it was hurrian people who bore the brunt of it. Many of these Hurrians decided at various points in the 1700s and 1600s BCE that they simply had no intention of bearing it anymore, and migrated in dribs and drabs southwards, one family or one village at a time. When they could enter peacefully, they would, though this could have strained local resources in the region and forced a new migration later as famine hit. Where they could not enter peacefully, they fought, and either moved on or took over, in turn causing the losers, perhaps, to move onwards. The end of the Middle Bronze Age in Canaanite archaeology is marked by a massive amount of destruction. Many sites were burned, and a large amount of the urban population either died or fled to the countryside to live as pastoralists. For a long time, modern scholarship believed that the mass destruction was linked to the Egyptian tribute campaigns of the Middle Kingdom, and those campaigns were characterized by early scholars in the modern era as bloodthirsty, scorched-earth campaigns. But while the Egyptian tribute missions certainly saw the destruction of certain rebellious cities, they were mostly met with peaceful offers of submission. And besides, they were a good uh, century or two too early for the greatest concentration of destruction. Those happened closer to the 1800s, whereas most of the destruction happens around the 1600s. Now, while the Middle Bronze Age was a prosperous time for Canaan, it was also a destructive time. And the thing that really tipped the needle was the violent rise of the Hittite Empire and the domino effect of migrations passing southwards, culminating in the massive Hyksos invasion of Egypt itself. Then Canaan, like much of the later Near East around 1600, goes dark. Things are bad for 100 years. What cities remain shrink in size and complexity. What fields are still tilled are unsafe from predation by nomadic groups. Nomadic groups are forced to attack each other in order to survive, and everyone is forced to move constantly, hoping that just over the next horizon is something somehow better. Modern films, like Mad Max, are popular because they tap into a collective human understanding that this is how things start to look when civilization falls apart. But around 1500, things start to get better again. But before we move forward, I need to mention a brand new archaeological claim that's making the rounds right as I write this episode, though it'll probably sort of be old news by the time I get this recorded and posted, and I'm a little busy, but it's how things go. Uh, you see, there is an archaeological dig at a place called Tel el-Hammam, near the mouth of the Jordan River, which has just released a remarkable finding, claiming that the archaeological site they are investigating was hit by a massive city-destroying meteor around the year 1650, which they currently propose exploded in mid-air above the city, much like the famous Tunguska Blast in the Russian wilderness. 
more powerful than an atomic bomb. This meteor, according to the team at El Hammam, hit so hard that it destroyed buildings as far away as Jericho and blew the entire contents of the Dead Sea into the air, dropping salt all over the Jordan Valley and rendering it unfarmable for a century or more. Now, these are explosive claims, to say the least, and even more dramatic because someone on the team is claiming that there may be a connection between this blast and the biblical tale of Sodom and Gomorrah. And though I cannot access whatever actual paper or presentation the Tel El Hammam team initially made, from the secondary accounts that I've been able to find, it does seem that the claim is not completely unfounded. They appear to have found incidentals on the ground that match meteor impacts, though I'm far from enough of an expert to fully evaluate their claims. Anyway, for me, the big problem with this claim is that it is wholly unprecedented and radical. Not only do no other archaeological teams in the region think that their sites suffered from anything that might look like a glancing blow from such a massive impact, but also our ancient records, although admittedly scarce, make no mention of what should really probably have been big news all the way from the Nile to the Euphrates. An entire region destroyed for a century in a single instant. A whole lake being blown dozens or hundreds of miles away. These really should have been mentioned somewhere, even if the 1600s were a pretty hard time for folks generally. Thus, I'm quite skeptical of these brand new claims, and it doesn't seem like I'm alone in my skepticism. Perhaps in the next few years, our understanding of the end of the Middle Bronze Age will undergo a revolution. But this is an extraordinary claim that will require extraordinary evidence. In any case, though I favor more broad-based climatological and migratory explanations for the decline, by the year 1500, things in Canaan start to improve once again. Now, improvement in this case takes the form of a massive foreign invasion from the south. After the Dark Age, Egypt is once again powerful, led by the mighty Tutmose I, and largely free of their Hyksos overlords. This is the rise of the Egyptian New Kingdom, probably the most famous of Egyptian historical eras. And once they finish reconquering the Nile Valley, Tutmose can't seem to think what to do with his armies but to keep on conquering. Marching all the way to the Euphrates, any city he finds in his wake becomes a new Egyptian province, and any king who submits to him becomes a mayor, Hazanu in Akkadian, a subject of the pharaoh. Here is where the region of Canaan really gets defined for later historical discussion, as anything north of the Sinai that's under Egyptian control is most likely the ancient understanding of Canaan. As time goes on, the, those Egyptian borders shift, and after the fall of the New Kingdom, the idea of exactly which places are and are not part of Canaan gets a bit fuzzy. But by the year 1450 BCE, Egypt controls basically the area of modern-day Israel and Lebanon, plus a bit extra, into modern Jordan and Syria. 
Much of this area has been reorganized compared to how it looked in the Middle Bronze Age, but the general pattern of settlements still holds. The Mitanni, meanwhile, have come in to control most of Syria. It was in the past thought that Egyptian domination was incredibly hard on the land of Canaan. This attitude likely comes from biblical narratives of foreign oppression, but it is increasingly clear that while the tax burden on the cities was remarkably harsh, uh, even harsher than was paid by the Mitanni or Hittite subject states, and paid regularly in terms of tribute and gifts, the region in general prospered greatly from the imposition of Egyptian peace and the restoration and expansion of the international trade system. And as the 18th dynasty wore on, subsequent pharaohs were less and less inclined to spend effort in the region, preferring to focus on the Nile heartlands, leaving the Canaanite mares more or less free to do their own thing, so long as they paid the tributes and didn't fight among each other too much. This is the general pattern when we reach the Amarna period. Pharaoh Akhenaten was a religious reformer who built a brand new capital city, Akhet Aten, and lived there for some 20 years or so. Now, while the story of Akhenaten and his new capital is a sprawling and fascinating one, covered in full glorious detail over on Dominic Perry's History of Egypt podcast, from the perspective of the Canaanites, all that really changed was that the letters now needed to be sent to a new place. More importantly, from an archaeological perspective, the collapse of Akhenaten's sun cult following his death led to the newly constructed capital city to be completely abandoned, and all the letters that were no longer relevant, just because they were more than a few years old, were simply left in the desert, where they sat until modern times. Now, the modern town of Amarna sits near the site of the once glorious capital, and archaeologists have been able to uncover one of the greatest historical treasures of the ancient world, a full city remarkably preserved from the ravages of time, including these hundreds of letters. We have, in fact, already looked at many of the Amarna letters on the show, since a number of them relate to the great powers of Babylon, Assyria, Mitanni, and the Hittites. But those are actually only a minority of the letters. Most come from the mares of Canaan and tell many tiny stories. For example, over in Jerusalem, the Canaanite mare Abdiheba has six surviving letters. He begins by complaining. It seems that he was under attack by a fellow named Anhamu, someone we know from many of the other letters, to be something of a roaming bandit, traveling around and attacking cities, extorting wealth, and likely trying to secure one of these towns for his own glory and security. The pharaoh was sent an envoy, asking for aid against an attack by Anhamu, but Abdiheba and the troops of Jerusalem were forced to beat him back on their own before the pharaoh was able to send any aid. Instead of sending a message claiming a victory for himself, Abdiheba seems to have had somewhat of a negative outlook, and is preferring to complain that no aid was received in time. 
Now, in his next letter, we can kind of see why he's so negative. For even though he has won this first battle, the long-term prospects against Enhamu and the other Habiru bandits were grim. First of all, he's concerned that he's being slandered in Pharaoh's court, that some are accusing him of abandoning his duty to protect Jerusalem on behalf of Egypt. Now, he says in the letter directly to these slanderers that they are supporters of the Habiru underclass of bandits and renegades, and they are opponents of the cities, essentially accusing them of siding with barbarians against civilization. Abdiheba goes on to explain that he has all of 30 soldiers, and these men were pulled away either through bribery or intimidation by Enhamu, and now there's no garrison at all left to defend the entire city of Jerusalem. He goes on to explain that not only Enhamu, but another Habiru band led by Ilimik and possibly other Habiru bands, have despoiled all the fields around the city, and he's been powerless to prevent it, powerless to defend anything outside the very walls of Jerusalem. He concludes by pleading that all the king's lands are being lost to these Habiru raiders. Abdiheba's next letter repeats much of the same claims, adding that it's unfair that other Canaanite cities have received gifts and support from the Pharaoh, but even though Abdiheba was hand-picked for the throne by the king of Egypt himself, Jerusalem can't get such support. And then, in the very next line, he mentions the fact that, well, actually, the king did send a garrison of Cushite soldiers to help out. These would have been Nubians from south of Egypt. But it turns out that these soldiers were little more than bandits, having torn down the garrison building that they were housed in, burst out in rebellion, and nearly killed Abdiheba himself. Though this last detail is actually mentioned in a postscript meant for the scribes and ministers to hear, not for Pharaoh's ears. Now it's the fourth letter that I would read to you in full. Honestly, the Jerusalem letters are some of the best of the bunch. They're concise, they're not too repetitive, and they really give us a good feel for many of the letters coming not just out of Jerusalem, but all around Canaan. Clearly, all of them are trying to convey helpless desperation alongside a bit of dignity. Now, I say that obviously each city has its own individual circumstances, but the general idea, a lot of them are being attacked by Habiru bandits, by all kinds of various different enemies, and these Jerusalem letters are a good example of that. The fourth letter is much of the same tone as the rest of these, but they tell us a bit more clearly about what's going on. It begins, Speak to the king, my lord, my son god, thus Abdiheba, your servant, at the feet of the, of the king, my lord. Seven times and seven times have I fallen in bowing. And you may recall right away that this is not how the great powers were introducing their letters when we looked at the Amarna letters from Babylon and the Hittites. In the great power letters, it was all about brotherhood, equality, and well-wishing. Here, it's about abject submission, and even has a line recognizing, perhaps, the religious agenda of Akhenaten. 
Look, the king, my lord, has placed his name at the coming forth of the sun and at the going in of the sun. It's a bit of pious flattery. How well did the Canaanite kings actually understand Akhenaten's new faith? I mean, how well did anyone, even those closest to Akhenaten? It's far from clear, but no doubt this was meant to impress with Abdihebda's sincerity for following even what may have been the unpopular parts of the Pharaoh's reform program. Look, he says, it is wretched what they've done to me. Look, as for me, I am not a ruler by nature, merely a soldier of the king, my lord. I was a companion of the king, by which he likely means that he was part of the inner circle of Pharaonic troops at some point. And I am a bringer of tribute to the king. It wasn't my father or mother, but instead the strong arm of the king that has placed me on the throne. Recently, the Egyptian official Adaya came to me, and I handed over to him ten slaves. Also, Shuta, the commissioner of the king, arrived, and I gave him twenty-one slave girls and eighty prisoners as a gift for the king, my lord. And so thereby, having established both his gratitude for receiving the throne from the king and his intention to continue paying tribute and gifts to Egypt, he's ready to get into the heart of the matter. May the king take counsel concerning his land. The land of the king is lost, all of it. I am trapped. There is open hostility against me. From the mountains of Seir to the city of Gath Carmel, all the rulers of your cities are at peace, but there is war against me. I have become like a habiru, an outcast, and I cannot bear the gaze of the eyes of the king, my lord, because of all the hostility against me. I am like a ship in the midst of the sea. The strong arm of the king takes the distant lands of Nahrima and Cush, but now the Habiru men are here, taking the cities of the king. There is not one loyal mare left to the king, my lord. All are lost. Look, when the mare Turbasu was killed at the great gate of the city of Silo, the king kept silent. As for Zimreda, ruler of Lachish, the servants abandoned him, joining the Habiru outcasts, and smote their lord. Yapethada was also killed at the city gate of Silo, but the king says nothing of that either. Why has the king not asked about these men? So may the king show concern for his land, and may the king turn his attention this way, and may regular troops come forth to these lands. If there are no regular troops in this current year, then lost, lost are all the territories of the king, my lord. Have the other mayors and officials not been reporting to the king, my lord, that the land of the king, my lord, is lost, and all the mayors are lost? If there are no regular troops in this current year, may the king dispatch a commissioner and let him take me to you with my top nobles, so that we may die in Egypt with the king, our lord. Obviously, he means instead of dying here in Jerusalem, which is kind of a pit. 
The letter ends with a subnote intended for the scribe who would be reading this to the pharaoh. These little postscripts are pretty common. And this one reads, To the scribe of the king, my lord, Thus Abdiheba, your servant, says to you, At your feet I have fallen. Present nice words to the king, because I am your servant and your son. Now, there is a good bit going on in this one letter. And though we have at least the surviving parts of the Amarna archive to let us know that the Egyptian bureaucracy did, in fact, know about the situation over in Canaan, there's an open question in all of these letters of to what extent are these vassal rulers faking it to get attention? Here, Abdiheba does not get the soldiers he asks for, which we know because he has another surviving letter still asking for soldiers, and yet Jerusalem does not fall during the Amarna period. We do know that there is one sense in which he is either faking or misinformed, that is, representing all his neighbors as at peace and prosperous while he alone is struggling, it's simply not the case, and the Pharaoh should know from other letters, and also we know from our various other sources, archaeologically speaking. But overall, when reading these letters from the Canaanite region, it is possible to get the sense that we're hearing from a pack of crybabies forecasting one doom after another, none of which ever seem to materialize. In the letter archive, we know that most of them send more letters after announcing their imminent doom. And in wider history, we know that Egypt generally managed to hold on to Canaan until the Bronze Age collapse. Still, nearly that's nearly two centuries away at this point. One particularly famous set of letters, written by a certain Ribhada, Lord of Byblos, contains over 60 different letters, each one insisting that the situation is more dire than the last time he wrote. And there are many modern sources that see the whole collection of letters from vassals as inventing crisis, or at least overstating it, in order to get attention. For myself, though, I see things a bit differently. Even though these are basically courtiers trying to get the pharaoh's attention, the equivalent of modern politicians making appeals to voters and thus inherently untrustworthy, we can take a look in these letters at what these mayors are requesting. They don't want relief from taxation or for gifts from the capital. I mean, maybe they did, but they're not asking for it in these letters, even though we know that their tax burden was crushingly high. No, they want, almost to a man, soldiers from Egypt, symbols of the Pharaoh's authority, which will bring with it more inspections of their dealings, less independence, more unpopular reminders of the city's subjugation. And what's more, the number that they think they need to secure these cities is almost hilariously low. In the final letter we have from Abdiheba, he wants only 50 regular soldiers to secure all of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas from these Habiru bandits. In letters from other cities, the numbers discussed are not much larger, one or two hundred at times. 
Now, this helps, by the way, to suggest the lower end of population estimates. Late Bronze Age Canaan likely had fewer than a quarter million people living it, in it, and no city was larger than 10 or perhaps 20,000 strong at best. But these are small cities, with small mayors asking for small additional troops, which they will likely be on the hook for feeding and housing. If they're asking for this extra burden, it seems likely to me that these mayors really are worried about the security situation in the region. And Jerusalem is not a unique situation. Though he seems less panicked about it, Mayor Bir Yezawa of Damascus discusses in all but one of his five letters the various military conflicts he's dealing with and asks for another 200 soldiers to reinforce him. A fellow named Zitri Jara, whose city is unknown, writes very brief notes and still has time to discuss the need for more troops, as does the mayor of Acre. Over in Megiddo, the mayor has the same line as Abdiheba, claiming that everyone else is at peace while he alone suffers from war, as if he either is under such attack that he knows nothing about the state of the other cities, or perhaps he believes that the Habiru raids to be somewhat more severe in his region. And of course, the most famous chicken little of the whole group is Rib Adi of Byblos, who writes obsessively every time his Amorite enemy Abdiashurta makes any move at all. His saga, after being ignored basically his whole career by Pharaoh, ends with all his forecasts of doom proving correct and his city being taken by the kingdom of Amaru. But ultimately, the pharaoh seemed not to care at all about the bloody warfare engulfing his territory of Canaan. This may seem odd at first, and it's one of the reasons some modern scholars discount the warnings of the Canaanite mares. But looking a bit more closely, it seems that the pharaoh didn't care if they killed each other so long as whoever won the wars remained loyal and paid tributes to Egypt. The governors, meanwhile, cared very much about who killed who, and they lived to see the devastation that these tiny wars brought to their tiny cities all throughout Canaan. By certain economic measures, the late Bronze Age was a disaster for the Canaanites. Taxes were crushing, and warfare was constant, leading to a population that never really recovered from the damage done in the Middle Bronze Age. And if we go by the lower population estimates, then this period is the lowest that the Levantine region ever gets until the worst part of the Turkish period in 1800 CE. But by other economic measures, Trade was flourishing, and wealth was overflowing in the cities. Now, I'm no Marxist historian, but this definitely looks like a time where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. That is, except for the rich who get defeated in the wars, they just get dead. Honestly, to survey the entire Amarna period, or even to read a good chunk of the letters, would probably be interesting, at least to me, but the oldest stories is probably going to move on forward with just this. I honestly just don't have time to get deep in the weeds here. 
What I can do is recommend the fantastic Dominic Perry's History of Egypt podcast, particularly episodes 122, 123, and 124, where he does an excellent job of telling specifically about the rise of Abdi Ashurta's Amorite kingdom as told through the Amarna letters. As the late Bronze Age wanes, the transition between prosperity and collapse is probably larger and more jarring for Canaan than anywhere else. It's they who enjoyed the most fruits from the Hittite-Egyptian peace treaty in the final century, but also they who got hit the hardest from the invading Sea Peoples, being situated both between the actual Sea People and the new rising desert enemies, the Sataeans, Habiru, and Ahlamu. And probably the best place historically to look at the Bronze Age collapse in Canaan is the place I wanted to talk about at the very beginning of these two episodes, but haven't really gotten around to it. You see, I mentioned before that Canaanite archaeology is particularly difficult because all the great cities of the Bronze Age are still the sites of modern-day cities, and thus hard to really dig into. There is, however, a single notable exception on the coast of modern-day Syria, the ruins of the city of Ugarit. Ugarit was abandoned during the Bronze Age collapse, and the site never reoccupied, leaving it, like the city of Akhet Aten, where the Amarna letters were dug up, an archaeological treasure trove. The saying it was abandoned is telling the end of the story before I tell the beginning. That story, however... We'll have to wait for another day, since what I had originally intended to be a single mini-episode covering all of Phoenician history has ballooned yet again into something much grander. Now, how long this series on Canaan will go, I have no idea, but I'm optimistic about holding to this general posting schedule, at least while I'm sort of on break, though of course I can't guarantee anything for a little bit, uh, as I'm still sort of in a life transition. Uh, also, the closer I get to the Iron Age, the more I realize still needs to be covered before we leave the Bronze Age. I'm getting so excited for some of the topics that I want to get to them that something else like sleep or maybe real life or having a real job, one of these things is going to have to make way so that I can find time for all of these um, end of the Bronze Age episodes I want to get to. Next episode, though, we're going to look at the history of Ugarit, but who knows what's going to happen or when it will be out. Until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>